0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Today I'm here with Dr. Julius Fleming, author of the book, Black Patients, Performance, Civil Rights, and the Unfinished Project of Emancipation, published with New York University Press. Thanks for speaking with me today.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Miko.
1: So uh, first, could you talk about um, a little bit about yourself, your research, and what inspired you to write this book?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a scholar of African-American literature um, and performance Um And so I've long been interested in 20th century um, African-American literature in particular. Um, The book was inspired actually by a graduate seminar that I took with my um, dissertation advisor and mentor, Thaddeus Davis, at the University of Pennsylvania. She taught a seminar called um, Law, Race, Narrative, the 1950s. So it was a seminar dedicated to one decade. And throughout that course, we had a a chance to just really study the kind of cultural, political, social dynamics of the 1950s through the lens of African-American literature. And so it was that class that really kind of sparked my interest in literature's role broadly in the civil rights movement. Um, and ultimately, I was sort of honing those interests to focus on theater in particular. Um, so that was the kind of motivating um motivating factor in the research. And then once I began the research, um, I was really interested in how um, historians, particularly historians of what's now called the Long Civil Rights Movement, were talking about the quote-unquote short arm of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, And specifically, they were talking about it, um, the Southern arm of the Civil Rights Movement, in ways that I found to be frank, quite troubling, um, suggesting that somehow this period wasn't radical. Um, And so once I got into the research, I came to a a different set of answers that really excited me.
1: Thank you for that. And so um, could you talk about your title? How How do you define black patients?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, so for me, uh, the, the, so the title came later, uh, actually came once I finished grad school. So the title was, was Staging Civil Rights. Um, and I was on postdoc at the Carter G. Woodson Center. And as I continued to um, revise the book, I just started to notice even more that most of the figures I was studying were um, were somehow interested in pushing a, bit, a back against this idea that Black people should wait for freedom. Um, and some of them even used the term patience verbatim. Um, and so the title comes from that kind of sentiment that really just kind of ooze from my archive that Black people, um, one, understood that um, white supremacy um, had long used waiting as a technology of violence, right, toward Black people, and so in terms of a definition, what I eventually arrived at is that Black patience is this racial project, right, that really spans from transatlantic slavery and colonialism to the present day, um, whereby white supremacy um, encourages and coerces and forces and demands Black people to wait, um, and, and and what this waiting is about is delaying the eventuality of freedom, which is to say that if you just wait until tomorrow. For Freedom is somehow on the horizon. And the civil rights movement was a really pivotal moment in which um, Black people realized what a ruse and what a trick this was. And so we get the kind of logic of freedom now as a way of pushing back against this white supremacist demand for Black people to wait.
1: For sure. And so one of one um, aim of your book was to, and I quote, Um, urge a broader critical investment in time as a foundational basis of social theory and black studies theorizing. And so can you explain, um, well, I'm sorry, you explain that you're situating um, your work in what you call um, black time studies. So could you like talk a little bit more about um, about this?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, So the field of black studies and the field of African-American literature um, have. Done a really great job of engaging, uh, developing a discourse around what we call spatial theory, of course. And so we have really exciting and productive and generative areas of study like black geographies, right? Um, A part of what I was interested in is how, alongside spatial theory and sort of the recognition that space from plantations to prison cells um, has been influential in black life, has been central to the operations of anti blackness and white supremacy. I just wanted to shine a light on how time has also been there from the beginning. And so if we think about something like the slave pens or something like the belly of the slave ship or even the slave castle, uh, from the origins of transatlantic slavery and colonialism, time was right there. So that even as those bodies were waiting in in, in the bellies of ships, right, they were waiting. So that's, that's an issue of time. And so temporality has been right there from the start of this kind of huge project of anti-Blackness. And so I came up with the term Black Time Studies just as a, a, a kind of not a supplement, but um, a a, a kind of parallel discourse, if you will, right? Um, That invites us to always think about kind of temporality as much as we think about space, because time has been central to the constitution of Blackness in the modern world.
1: For sure. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um, And so, excuse me. So how does um, examining theater disrupt our common understandings of the movement and its stages?
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, um, it, it, it expands how we see the movement. It provides a different lens for understanding and knowing the movement. You know, as you know, the primary frameworks, the primary analytics for thinking about the civil rights movement are photography and television. Um, and th- these were certainly innovative technologies during the time, and they certainly helped to kind of, um bring international attention to the movement. And so they do a lot of credit, of course. At the same time, we have, for example, novels. We have poetry um, that were produced during this era. And also we have theater. And what's so um, great about theater is that theater can be produced really quickly, right? theater can be produced in multiple places. And so one of the things that I think theater does for us, because theater is so diverse, it shows us the diversity of the movement. And so if long civil rights movement scholars often say that the short movement wasn't diverse, it wasn't radical. Well, if we go to theater, not only in Mississippi, or we go to theater in Los Angeles, we can go to theater in New York. In the book, I focus on theater um, in, in Europe, right? In the Netherlands. Theater was everywhere and was so central to the movement. And so what it does is to provide us a kind of aperture into the the movement in its fullness so that we can sort of avoid making reductive claims about what the movement was. We get radicalism, we get conservatism, we get radical gender politics, we get patriarchy, we get both the good and the bad, right? And and theater shows us that. Also, for example, there's a case study that I look at in Mississippi um, where a kind of grassroots theater comes in to some of the most... um, rural, most racist corners of the United States. Um, And of course, there are members of those audiences who are happy to have the theater there, who see the radical politics at work. At the same time, there are people living in the Mississippi Delta, for example, there's one man who turns on his lawnmower during one of the theater's productions because he doesn't want to be involved in those radical politics. And so one thing I think theater does is to help us to avoid romanticized narratives about the movement and to see it for what it actually was.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. And so I'm going to kind of backtrack slightly to talk about time again, because again, time was a major theme of your book. Um, And so you also introduced Afro-presentism, And I found that interesting. And so I wanted to see if you would like, could you talk to us? Sorry, could you talk to us about this? And then also um, how the now is revolutionary?
0: Yeah, so in um, Black Studies, we tend to focus a lot on history and memory. Right. Because of the traumatic nature of Black past um, and sort of the ongoing, uh, the aliveness of those pasts and how they continue to inflect Black life in the present. So the past has been really central to our thinking, to our analytical frameworks. And we also tend to talk a lot about the future, right? Black futurity, Afrofuturist, Afrofuturism. And in writing this book, the archive actually brought me to the concept, like Black Patients of Afro-Presentism, um, this kind of abiding and recurring investment in the now as an important temporality for Black life. Because a part of what the the, the dramatist and the the political activists I study recognize is the, the traumatic nature of Black past. But they also recognize how the future was being used as a, as a trick, as a kind of Of strategic technology of white supremacy um, so that 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 if you wait until tomorrow, somehow freedom will come. And these weren't the most, quote unquote, racist people in the bastion of of the the Confederacy. Right. Um, These were people like President Dwight Eisenhower. Who, At the same time that um, he's signing uh, bills that authorize NASA, that he's helping to come basically invent certain kinds of spaceships that can go into outer space, he's telling black people to go slow. Um, these are people like William Faulkner. These are people like uh, Attorney General uh, Robert Kennedy, right, who are telling black people to go so And so what they recognize is that we have to invest in the now because a part of what white supremacy doesn't want is for black people to enjoy the the, the privileges, the benefits of freedom and citizenship right now. So a part of what I argue is that uh, through the concept of afro presentism is that, one, we in black studies have to invest more critically in the idea of the present. Right? Um, And that too, the present has been so critical to Black political modernity and to Black people's political thinking because they recognize how white supremacy has weaponized the future and has also plundered Black past.
1: Thank you for that. And so, um, could you also talk about the fugitive effect and how it and Black patients coexist?
0: And so the, the concept of Black patience, of course, is a temporal concept, the idea of waiting. And so uh, patience essentially means to wait, uh, being willing to engage in long suffering, right? So there is the temporal idea of waiting associated with patience, but also patience um, has to do with a willingness to wait. Um, and so in terms of its etymology, it comes from Latin verbs, that the pati and patientia, um, that means suffering or to suffer. Right. Um, And so patience is about waiting and suffering, but it's also about a willingness to do these things. So there's a kind of a gentle quality, a kind of willful sacrifice that one makes. And so what white supremacy wants is not only for black people to wait for freedom, but they want black people to perform a willingness to wait, to not be disturbed by the waiting, to not wait with an attitude, right? Um, But to willfully wait. And and so we can go back to slavery, for example, and think about the crazy charge of impudence that was often hurled at enslaved folk because they were sometimes too sassy because they they looked a certain way at the master. Um, But it is about sort of what uh, messages, what codes are conveyed through black people's emotional expressivity, right? And so fugitive affect then is a concept that I came up with to chart how black people have used their emotions, they've used their feelings as a way of hitting back at white supremacy, as a way of demanding freedom now. And so we can think about things like black rage. We can think about things like black anger. There was a moment during the civil rights movement where um, I think uh, he was um, responding to the sit-in protesters and Attorney General Robert Kennedy said to the civil rights protesters, we need a period of cooling off. Um, And that meant basically black people calm down, be patient, be willing to suffer. And what people like John Lewis said is that, you know, if we cool off anymore, we'll be frozen. Um, And so they turned to things like where if not black rage, if not black anger, just a a kind of forceful um, refusal to engage in the project of black patience that was not this willingness to suffer. And what makes it fugitive, of course, is that it it goes against the grain of the proper, right? It's an improper way of performing black emotions within white supremacy.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And so um, in chapter one, one of your chapters, you introduce readers to the Century of Negro Progress Exposition in Chicago. And so um, could you talk a little bit about this event and how this became a site for um, conceptualizing black patients?
0: sure Yeah, so i was actually in the archives uh in chicago and i came across this uh exhibit Uh, at the Chicago Public Library. And um, it led me to the Chicago State Archives because um, what happened uh, for the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation is that there were all of these celebrations across the country. Black people were now celebrating 100 years of quote unquote freedom from slavery. Um, And the biggest of these uh, exhibitions happened in Chicago. So this is why there was such a, a kind of rich archival site. So what's happening is that, of course, black people are saying, wow, we've been free for 100 years. This is wonderful. We've made some good progress. At the same time, um, they're saying it's been 100 years and we still don't have freedom. Right. We're still not free. And this is before the Voting Rights Act. This is before the Civil Rights Act, right? Um, this is during a time, of course, when people are seeing images of Emmett Till. They're seeing little girls being bombed and sprayed with fire hoses, being attacked by German shepherds, um, civil rights activists coming up murdered. And so really, they have a kind of apartheid operating in the belly of, of, of U.S. democracy. And so they temper the celebratory nature of this important historical moment. And so a part of what we get is this kind of twin celebration of a century of freedom, but also a recognition that um, we still are being asked to be patient. It's been an entire century, and we're still waiting for freedom. And so I thought that exhibit was just such a crucial um, moment in the civil rights movement for thinking about the very idea, and to begin my discussion, really, of this idea of Black patience, because what I don't want to do is to be pessimistic, right? Because these people weren't pessimistic. They're saying there's something important about 100 years of freedom, and yet our future has to look different. Um, And and I was really struck by the lack of scholarship uh, on the the centennial. We talk a lot about the Emancipation Proclamation, but this this centennial celebration was hugely important for Black people. It was a a huge cultural moment. We had people like Duke Ellington performing. Um, We had um, Lorraine Hansberry involved. We had people who came from Madagascar, people who came from Mexico. So it was a really kind of international diasporic event that was pivotal to sort of Black political modernity but also to the civil rights movement and to kind of indexing how black people recognize the the violence of black patients but also pushed against it
1: for sure Um, and then you mentioned um we briefly talked about like theater um earlier but could you also could you talk about how um the ways in which theater contested black patients especially in the south
0: yeah sure um so one of my favorite chapters in the book is the chapter on the Free Southern Theater because you know the archive is just funny um, in inter- related to that that theater. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was one of the people who showed up to performances, and I love the theater because they stage, for example, some kind of high art, quote unquote high art modernist plays like Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And this is a play that, when it opened, when it left France and it opened, I think in Miami in the United States, even. A, a Sort of intellectual people, people, quote unquote people who had certain formal education, um, were baffled by the play. And in fact, many of them walked out of the theater confused by the play. And so, you know, it almost seems counterintuitive to take this kind of higher modernist play to the Mississippi Delta, for example, where the average education was something like an eighth grade education. And the theater actually worried that the audience wouldn't understand it. But you had people like Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, famed civil rights activist, who, who had limited education, but she stood up during those productions and said, we are the people who have been waiting too long. We're waiting for Godot. And of course the entire kind of um, a conceit of the plot is that Godot never comes. And so theater was this way of, of using art, this way of using black expressive culture in the service of Black political progress. But not only Black political progress, also this educational tool that exposed and, and operated alongside the limited education that Black people received, specifically education that didn't always um, wasn't always truthful about the traumas of Black people's past and their histories, right? And so theater was an educational tool. It was a kind of tool um, toward kind of Black political progress. And also folk often enjoyed it, right? It allowed for the formation of Community. Um, We think about the importance of the black church. We think about the barbershop, right? But theater in this moment, and and this is before television, really. Um, And even though television is coming into existence here, most of these people don't have the financial resources to have television, right? And so theater becomes this kind of um, cultural technology that also is important for the formation of community, especially in the U.S. South. Um, And I love that they stage plays like Waiting for Bidot um, because we had. Southern writers, Mississippi writers like William Faulkner, who were saying to Black people, quote, go slow, stop now for a time, a moment. And they used it to say, no, we want our freedom now.
1: Thank you for that. And so um, you mentioned, you talk, you discussed the um, Black queer present. And um, could you speak about the Black queer present and the intersections of Blackness and queerness in the civil rights movement? And then how does this complicate what we think we know about the movement.
0: Yeah, thanks to some really um, good scholarship, recent scholarship, we know a lot about people like Pauli Murray, Bayard um, Rustin. Um, and so there were always these key um, queer figures in the civil rights movement who were important to the movement's very existence, right, to to its formation, to its kind of ideological and, and kind of logistical um, 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 development. At the same time, we understand how because Black people were so invested, they knew that a part of what was being watched and judged during the Civil Rights Movement was Blackness itself, the character of Blackness. And so they knew that they had centuries of stereotypes about Black people that they had to fight against in order to render themselves worthy of freedom and worthy of citizenship to the world. And so what this meant then is, of course, is that you often had people in Mississippi and Alabama in 100-degree weather wearing suits, you know, uh, because they knew that how they dressed, how they carry them themselves, how they comported themselves, their character. Um, those things were as important as those kind of more formal political um, arguments that they were making. What this meant then is that women often were pushed to the back of the movement because of the investment in patriarchy. It meant that um, queer people often had to take a back seat. And so a part of what I was interested in, in this chapter, on the one hand, is just how Um, Important queerness is to the civil rights movement and how we don't have to go to iconic queer figures like Bayer Rustin. We can go to someone like Black playwright Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones, who was extremely homophobic by the time he became a Black arts movement um, uh, political actor and and cultural creator. And yet, even this man, who is um, uh, without question homophobic, has this... um, uh, trio of plays, right, um, that are all about queerness produced during the civil rights movement. And what he tells us is that these uh, these these plays um, are my civil rights plays, right? These plays are my civil rights plays, all Im- involve queer characters, not just in theater, but we can also look at prominent um, civil rights figures in Mississippi for exam- example, like Aaron Henry, who, you know, was caught more than one time, um, engaged allegedly engaged in certain queer relationships, and a part of what um, Rustin by Rustin and Aaron Henry said is that the, the the charge of communism, right, which was one of the most important charges launched against against the civil rights movement in order to discredit it, they said that that it lost its punch. Now. The, the white people were engaged in what they call queer baiting, which is to say that we can just say that someone is queer, it will challenge the moral authority of the movement and therefore kind of unsettle the progress that the movement is making. So part of what I wanted to do then is to kind of spotlight the importance of queerness to the civil rights movement, spotlight the importance of queerness to Black theater during this time, and to also come up with this idea of the Black queer present and to suggest that if Black people um, have have been denied access to the future, Black queer people, Black women, and we could, you know, add all of the the different kind of categories, right? Social categories. They've been even more denied access to those futures, to the promises of the future. Um, and so, I think that throughout the book, I, I make this argument about Afro-presentism, and with the Black queer present, I want to suggest that for Black queer people, that that embracing of the present is even more important. This was especially important for me because um, so much of queer theory is about futures, right? And in fact, Jose Munoz, whose work I love, says that, you know, essentially the future is the province of queer people. Right. The future is the pro- province of, of queer people. Um, and he actually calls the present a prison house. And and I want to suggest that for black people whose futures have been so long denied, we can't have that relationship to the present. And black people haven't had that relationship to the present. They found unique and productive ways of reorienting their relationship to it.
1: Yeah, that's powerful stuff. Um, OK, so while you introduce... Black patients, you also discuss white impatience. And so, um, how would you describe white impatience? And then, what role did black playwrights in particular play in it?
0: Yeah, so yeah, this, this, it's, you know, it's really ironic that, you know, white people during this moment who are kind of making these demands for black patients are among the most impatient people in the world. Um, And black playwrights put their finger on the pulse of white impatience. So, whether it's Lorraine Hansberry, um, or whether it's uh, Douglas Turner Ward, whether it's James Baldwin, right? Um, James Baldwin uh, is really good about uh, kind of giving us images through theater of white people. He, he was a student of whiteness in the same way that Du Bois was. Um, and what he constantly shows us through theater is that white people effectively um, don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be controlled. They don't like to be patient at the same time that they're demanding Black, black patience. And so this was a huge part of the plot of the works that I study. For example, Baldwin writes a play called Blues for Mr. Charlie, and that entire play is about studying, quote unquote, Mr. Charlie, or what many would call the white man. And what we see is, is a kind of thought experiment in white impatience, in white anger, really, that eventually leads the main white character to murder a black man with impunity, right? Um, and so they really put their finger on the importance of white impatience. Um, but at the same time, it's not just the plots of these plays. These were theatrical performances, right? So again, that brings in into the picture the question of audience. And so So, of course, when many of the audience members saw these radical portraits of white people or when they saw white impatience, they didn't like it. And these just weren't hardcore white supremacists in Mississippi. These were often white people who could afford to go to Broadway, what we might call white liberals. They did not like it. And so a part of what happened is that many of them stopped supporting the plays. The plays often were in jeopardy of being closed down early, right, because people didn't like these images of whiteness. So a part of why I make that argument, one, is to say that, uh, like television and photography, theater is a visual technology. It is a way of seeing. We actually see these images of white people, but also theater lets us see other things. So we need to kind of incorporate it in that kind of field of study, visual culture, right? This is also, in that chapter, I also want to say um, <clears throat> that that this is radical work, Right? There were, there were actually laws called reckless eyeballing laws that prevented black people from looking at white people. It was illegal. Right. And also at the same time during the civil rights movement, there was this huge fetish with looking at images of damaged black people. The body of Emmett Till. Think about the, that the circulation of that photo and what brought so many people to it. The, the horror right? Um, Think about those photographs of those, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Think about the children in Brown Board of Education, for example, and the emphasis on their damaged hearts and minds. And so a part of what these playwrights were doing, and they were joined in this by other um, people. For example, Ebony Magazine published a special issue called The White Problem in America. What they all were doing was saying, hey, let's shift our attention away from Black people, right? These spectacular images of Black people and go to the people who actually created the problem and that is white. you know those people are white people and often they're impatient white people
1: thanks for that and um in what ways do you see black patients being contested today
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so many, I think, fruitful and productive ways, um, from Facebook posts that call out patriarchy and white supremacy, um, uh, homophobia, um, uh, those kind of small, quote unquote, small scale um, contestations of Black patients, to Black Lives Matter uh, marches, um, to, uh, you know, political figures calling out uh, racism when they see it, um, and refusing to kind of keep black people embroiled in the Project of Black Patients, Um, to the the grandmother um, in Mississippi who says to her child that you can go to college, you can... uh, be whatever you want to be. You can have access to the affordances of democracy and citizenship right now. You don't have to wait for it or you don't have to wait and die to go to heaven to quote unquote see Jesus to get your freedom. So I think it's happening at so many different levels and different scales. I I think a lot of people perhaps are lament the fact that we don't have a quote-unquote civil rights movement for our moment, this kind of cohesive movement that we thought was happening in the 1950s, even though that really was a series of local movements as well. A lot of people lament that, but I think um, thanks to technology, um, thanks um, to so many innovations, we have these different scales at which the contestation of Black patients uh, is happening. Um, and, and, you know, also those moments that we laugh at, I'm thinking about um, Congresswoman Maxine Waters uh, reclaiming my time we all thought that was powerful and funny and people, Auntie Maxine, it's not. But just think about that, right? Um, for Black people who have not had access to time, for Black people for whom time has been a weapon of anti-Black violence, even more more so for Black women to reclaim her time, that is an act, a kind of spectacular act, for example, of contesting Black patients.
1: For sure. And so um, what do you want readers to gain from reading your book?
0: so, one, I want them to think about the importance of theater, um, the importance of theater to the civil rights movement. Um, theater is so crucial. You know, there are these moments where um, in Mississippi, for example, where um, the, the, the members of the KKK come out. Um, there are moments where the White Citizens Council co- comes out. Um, but theater is also can be put on and then taken down. And with very little evidence, right? And so it's it's kind of this mysterious, um, uh, uh, radical cultural instrument that Black people have at their hands. There was a case in in Los Angeles where one of the plays being put on by Amir Baraka um, was being surveilled uh, by the Vice Squad, the LAPD, because of the queer content. Well, um, in in many cases, by the time the the vice squad got there, the, the play was over because it was a one act and it was so short, right? So there's this kind of like temporal, radical temporal quality to theater that I think was important. Also, more than anything, I want black people to stop waiting for freedom to stop waiting for freedom. I want black people to stop over-investing in the future as the time, as the perfect time for whatever freedom means for you, for whatever access to the affordances of democracy mean for you, for whatever access to the quote-unquote good life means for you. Now is that time because, and this is not me being pessimistic, I'm actually, I I push against hard, very, in, in very kind of hardcore ways, I push against certain pessimistic ways of thinking in Black study. Um, But I want us to be very honest about the fact that since we've been in the new world, um, that future that we have been imagining has never come in the way that it has been promised. And so I think what that means then is that we have to enjoy access to the quote-unquote good life right now. For some, that might look like an orgasm. (laughs) For others, that might look like um, fighting for the right to vote. For others, that might look like earning the degree that you want. Whatever that that sense of freedom is for you, go for it now because we know uh, what might be around the corner. And I think, you know, and I teach my students this, if we actually chart Black life from slavery forward, what we recognize is that whenever there's any semblance of quote-unquote Black progress, there's always regress, right? So we know Reconstruction we know what happens after that, <laughs> the, the nadir, right? Civil rights movement, rollback and affirmative action, all kinds of conservative um, kind of attacks on black freedom. We get Barack Obama and we get this kind of post-racial society, and then we get who we get after that and all the kind of um, tragedy that unfolds. As a... So in other words, enjoy freedom now because the, the, the history of the new world teaches us that for black people, the future might be as traumatic and perilous as our past.
1: Thanks, Dr. Fleming. So this was a a great book, a powerful read. Um, And so I'm very interested and I'm sure the audience is interested in what you're working on next.
0: Thanks for that. Thanks for reading the book. I I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm so I I have a couple projects that I'm working on. I'm working on one project that's about um, outer space and and blackness um, and sort of thinking about, you know, in the thick of decolonization when kind of colonial powers are kind of rolling back their kind of quest to conquer the world, how outer space becomes this kind of version, untouched terrain where they can take those colonial ambitions. And then I'm also working on a project that um, really is a a critique in some ways of transnationalism. And I'm a man, a Black man from Mississippi, from the Deep South. Um, and I, you know, I've, to be frank, I've been in one too many academic rooms where people see places like Mississippi or Alabama as somehow backwards as somehow not modern, as somehow disconnected from transnationalism. And so I'm really interested in how this kind of transnational turn um, has put us in a place where the national, the local, become um these ways of thinking, these places that somehow are lower on the hierarchy of our of critical importance. And so I want to, to, to work on that and to kind of make an argument for their, their continued importance.
1: Wow, so it seems like you have some great work that's going to be coming out in the near future. so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so I'm definitely looking forward to it and hopefully we can get you back on to the New Books Network.
0: Of course, of course, always it was a pleasure.
1: Same. So, yeah, it was a pleasure uh, speaking with you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Awesome. Thank you.